Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld. Here, we discuss the science in each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture. Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly, whenever your case is on hold. Welcome back, everyone. We are on the May 3rd, 2023 issue of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. In case you're not aware, there is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to humankind, a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and darkness, between science and superstition, and it lives between the pit of a surgeon's fears and the summit of their knowledge. There is a signpost up ahead. Your next stop, your case is on hold. Dun, dun, dun. No, it's really like... Dee, 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 dee. <laughs> Twilight Zone has been... This in. is Your Case is on Hold, episode 33. I am Andrew Schoenfeld, deputy editor for Methods. Here's the agenda. We got the suitcase up in the Centra. Go to room 112. Tell them Blanco sent you. And my co-host, who will do her rap now. Blanco and I are not buddies, I'm sorry. So Pablo and Blanco. <laughs> I'm just Antonia Chen, and I'm a deputy editor in adult reconstruction. Internationally known and recognized, not just in Times Square, but in Dimes Square. All my friends at Columbia NYU HSS, I know you know what I'm talking about. And they're representing New York. Yes. Dimes Square is where it's at. <laughs> We are, as I mentioned, discussing the May 3rd, 2023 issue. This episode of Your Cases on Hold is uh, brought to you by the Miller Review Course. Get in, get scheduled, uh, register for those who are taking the uh, part one of the ABOS exam or just trying to get a leg up on all there is to know about orthopedic knowledge. You could probably get like 85, 90% by listening to your cases on hold, but that other 10% is really important. So top it off with the Miller Review course. Everything we're talking about here, including references to Dime Square, the Twilight Zone, or anything else that you know comes to my mind is my opinion. And what Antonia says is her opinion. And it doesn't apply to the editorial board of the journal uh, or any of the other subsidiary journals. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. Give us a like, subscribe, make sure that you get all the notifications. Uh, if you can give us a five-star rating, Apple, Spotify, that really helps us out and will uh, help us bring you these great insights and pop culture references, and it will keep them keep them coming. What's your favorite Twilight Zone episode? You're going to kill me. I've never, never watched the Twilight Zone. Oh, really? Wow, you got to... You got to check some of those out. They're the real classics. Wait, I keep listening to your cases on hold. I don't have time for the Twilight Zone. <laughs> That's why we get all those listens. <laughs> just just our over and over and over, and over again. Antonia continuing to listen over and over and over again. Mine's Talking Tina, which is you've talked about how much you like Chucky. So you should you should check out Talking Tina because that's the that's the original Chucky with Telly Savalas, Kojak later on. And Talking Tina is, you know, it starts out like I'm Talking Tina and I don't think you're very nice. And then it just kind of escalates from there. And she's like, I'm Talking Tina. 
and I think I'm going to kill you. And then she's like, and then she does. And then she tells like the little girl, she's like, I'm talking Tina and you better be nice to me. We all have talking Tina's in our lives, right? It's like, I'm a reviewer too. And I don't like your paper very much. And then you send it back. It's like, I'm a reviewer too. And I think I'm still going to reject this. Is talking Tina the Karen of reviewers? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, sure. (laughs) Absolutely. Or it's like, I'm talking Tina. And you haven't done your mandatory trainings this year. Have you done your HIPAA training yet? I'm talking Tina. Your case is on hold. <laughs> All right, let's let's get to it. Let's get to top of the pile. Uh, clavicular fractures in the adolescent by Patel and colleagues. Then we have what's important. A New York doctor goes to Dixie by Purcell. This is permanently free. I thought this was Doc Hollywood the movie in the 80s with uh, Michael J Fox but i guess it's a it's it, it's a reimagined for our times new york doctor goes to dixie it's like a connecticut yankee in king arthur's court equity it's supporting it's a it's a it's a story of a, a long lost dream oh all right i'm just making it up now teaser teaser <laughs> everyone equity driven implementation of patient reported outcome measures in musculoskeletal care Advancing Value for All by Stern and colleagues. So that's that's it for top of the pile for this issue. We're now going to go into the headlines. Uh, I'll start. Uh, spinal sagittal alignment changes during childhood. Results of a national cohort analysis of 1,059 healthy children by Pacenti uh, and colleagues. All right. So uh, check it out, everyone. This is really a very interesting study. It is level four, but you know they they are really doing something special here. They got six pediatric centers in the in the current time frame. We're not talking about data that started collecting in two thousand or something like that. It's twenty nineteen and twenty twenty. That's it. Six pediatric centers, and realistically, it was probably like most of twenty nineteen and just kind of the first couple months of of, of twenty twenty. They have one thousand fifty nine healthy children in which they did full spine radiographs to measure several of the classic spinal pelvic parameters, thoracic kyphosis, lumbar lordosis, risser stage, and uh, they kind of make these characterizations. This is one of the largest studies showing changes in sagittal alignment with growth in normal children and adolescents. All right. So six pediatric centers, I mean, that's really unprecedented. This is very interesting work. It's imminently testable. This is stuff that I, I, you know, I, I can't guarantee things because I don't write the questions. I used to write the questions, but I don't write the questions. Like this is stuff that shows up on the OITE. It's like, it, it's just ready-made OITE question material. So so everyone should should check this out. You know, at the, 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 the main take-home message, they found that changes in spinal shape were what they call a cascading phenomena, which is really interesting. At the beginning of the growth peak, pelvic incidence is increased. And then uh, there are changes in pelvic morphology that lead to an increase in lumbar lordosis and then thoracic kyphosis. So it's kind of like a sequential staging. It, it is level four evidence, of course. They, they are upfront in the limitations. It's a cross-sectional study. They say doing it longitudinally would be better. That would take, I think, a lot more time. I don't think there's anything inherently flawed about this. There are other ways that you could do it that would probably be more expensive. I mean, you know, almost 1,100 children in six pediatric centers in a very small amount of time. I think this is a tough, tough to beat uh, investigation. 
And that and that's really what it comes down to. I think it's well worth the read. It's very interesting. Some people, you start talking about spinal pelvic parameters and their eyes start to glaze over because it is kind of like a lot of a lot of math. It kind of reminds me like in the mid 2000s, we went through this thing with like the ACLs and it seemed like every week they were discovering a new bundle or like the, the anterior had like four sub bundles. And then like it used to be a capsule, but now it's like the posterior capsular ligamentous complex. And it's like the dinosaurs, you know, like you thought you had a handle on dinosaurs when you were seven or eight. And then your kids get a dinosaur book and you're like, what did they do to the brontosaurus? It's like five different dinosaurs now. And they were like, yeah, we went back and we asked them and they told us actually their name wasn't brontosaurus. So it's kind of that sort of thing with the spinal pelvic parameters. There always seems to be another one. This one is fixed. That one is changeable, but it's stuff that they like to test on. And I think this is a, you know, very interesting and valuable just based off of, again, the, the scope of it, the, the way it was conducted. And, uh, you know, that's my take on it. Essentially Simon, modern day wit coming at you with those new musings. Like there's nothing more dangerous than an anesthesiologist with a plane to catch. I have to second that. I mean, it's well done. High five. Catch that plane and run with it. Well, you know, if they have to catch the plane, that means your case goes on hold, right? Why do you think I'm in scrubs now in between cases? <laughs> now on to the second article. We're going to look at borderline dysplasia after primary hip arthroscopy with capsular application and labral preservation, 10-year survival, and patient-reported outcomes by Dom et al. And for 30 days, it's free. So no excuse to not read this fun article. So the idea is evaluation of borderline hip dysplasia with a labral tear or FAI, which is femoral acetabular impingement syndrome, is not a common topic, especially with long-term outcomes. We're talking 10-year outcomes. This is the nice thing about patients, right? If you're conducting studies, study them for a period of time and keep following them over time to see how they do. Borderline hip dysplasia is defined by a lateral center edge angle between 18 and 25 degrees. And in this specific study, they were looking at primary hip arthroscopy with capsular application and labral preservation. This is versus what they normally would do, they say, is periacetabular uh, osteoplasty, osteotomy, I'm sorry. The periacetabular osteotomy is basically as you cut the pelvis and you put the pelvis down in the right place so there's no more dysplasia. But these are borderline dysplasia patients, not frank uh, dysplasia patients, supposedly. Now, of note, it's 10-year follow-up, so there were only 45 out of 56 eligible hips. So it's not a large patient population, and the authors did acknowledge that as a limitation, but it's still pretty good at 10 years. And it's, again, likely secondary to the long follow-up and the patient population that's actually eligible for this. And a lot of times we always ask ourselves, okay, if we do a hip arthroscopy now, can we delay the need for a total hip replacement later on? Normally, these patients tend to be younger. They tend to be female. And in this study, there was a higher preponderance of both of them with the younger patient population. But it's one of those things with this patient population, it was a, appropriate according to their sample size calculation. So the sample size calculation was based on the modified Harris hip score with a difference of eight and a standard deviation of 15. So they need 43 hips with um, the borderline hip dysplasia and 86 hips in the control group because of one to two matching. And I'm going to ask you a question about the matching in just a little bit because you know that I'm interested in your take on this propensity score matching. That said, lots of good problems were collected. We looked at, again, the modified Harris hip score, the non-arthritic hip score, the hip outcome score, sports-specific subscale, and visual analog scale for pain. And this is done over a period of time, which is good because we want to obviously be able to capture this over time. Exclusion criteria were patients who had prior hip epsilateral surgery, workman's comp, tonus greater, greater than one, previous hip conditions, an LCEA of less than 18, keep that in your mind, 
or previous hip conditions such as fracture, osteoarthritis, or LCP disease, or were unwilling to participate in the study. Fair. The propensity match comparisons to those without borderline hip dysplasia who underwent hip arthroscopy, and they used greedy matching without replacement, and groups were matched in a one-to-two ratio with a bunch of different variables, age, sex, BMI, tonus grade, preoperative alpha angle, capsular treatment, and label treatment. Before I go any further, what are your takes on this propensity score matching type? So basically, what they're trying to do is they're trying to assemble a, a matched cohort, right? And propensity score matching is a causal inference technique. It has a, uh, an esteemed reputation because it has the ability to sort of create like clinical equipoise as, as you'd like to do. You can simulate a randomized control trial if it's done well and methodologically sound. All right. But you have to have the right setting for that. And this isn't the right setting for that. So uh, what these authors want to do is they want to create a matched cohort of patients who do not have the borderline hip dysplasia. So you could do that any number of ways. They chose to use a propensity score matching technique, and and that's fine. You could do it with some other kind of matching technique. So it's nicer because they're including more variables in it, but it doesn't add any kind of enhancement to the to the methodologic standpoint. It's just the way that they went about the matching. And that's that's it. Cool. Just curious about that. So one of those things I just like to see that says greedy matching. So. Yeah, it's an important, I mean, that just means that like, they're going to like go with like all, uh, you know, the ones that have the, they're going to find a match with the closest number of variables that, that, that add up. But, you know, it's all based off of a propensity score and, if your score, it doesn't mean that everyone is exactly the same on all those characteristics. It's going to be a composite. And they're going to ask you another question as methodology. When it comes to sample size, they calculated it based on a modified Harris HIP score difference of eight, but they reported a difference of one at the end yeah. of it. Yeah. So does that does that nullify our conclusions? Yeah, here? it just doesn't. It doesn't really add up. Like you did, you did a calculation, and then and when the difference in your sample is so, I mean, again. Like they only have so doing a power calculation on retrospective work, there are different philosophies about it, but generally across the board, it, it doesn't track very well because it was like, okay, well, if you need more cases, what are you going to do? You can't, you just, this is what you got. You, you're going to have to work with this. So, you know, a lot of times people do it as a way to try to judge it up a bit, if you will. Judging it up is the way that we like to do our cases. Jazz can you know, make things happen. <laughs> All right. So the author stated that these patients were included in the study and they said nine patients underwent PAO with concomitant primary hip arthroscopy performed between the years of September, 2008 and 2011 of these tips. Three were in the BDH group, but the other six had frank dysplasia, which were LCA of less than 18. So they did include patients that they were supposed to exclude. Something to think about as well too. Primary endpoint was conversion of total hip arthroplasty. They're saying the overall survivorship was 82.2% over this 10-year period. Odds of going to going conversion to total hip were 4.4 times higher in patients with body mass index greater than 23, which honestly is not that high, and 7.1 times higher for patients who were greater than 42 years of age. And whether or not that's due to the fact that the patient's older, and I use that term very loosely now as they get older, but they're more likely to you know go to a total hip as opposed to try other conservative management things. But the Cox regression model identified age and BMI as independent risk factors for conversion to total hit, but the hazard ratio for age was 1.08, and the confidence interval was 1 to 1.2, so it did have 1 in there. 
And then the hazard ratio for BMI was 1.08 also, but the confidence interval was 0.9 to 1.2. So also crossed over one, which makes it probably not as robust um, given the Cox regression model. When it came to the PROMs, uh, the patient, the study demonstrated that they're improving in PROMs across all categories and they achieved MCID at high rates, but that was true for both the BHD group and the control group as well too. And the population underwent surgery. The, they all did well. There was actually a better survival rate for those who did not have borderline hip dysplasia. They had a 92.2% survival rate versus the 82.2. Personally, I would have loved to see the study comparing borderline hip dysplasia patients who underwent hip arthroscopy to borderline hip dysplasia patients who did not undergo hip arthroscopy. So the question for me is, if someone comes in with borderline hip dysplasia, has this measured LCA angle, should they get a hip arthroscopy or should they not get a hip arthroscopy? And will that delay their chance of getting a total hip replacement? That's what I would love to know. So I would like to know if the hip arthroscopy decreased the likelihood of THA over 10 years. Yeah, that's going to be hard for them to do with the, with the limited number of cases that they have. I, you know, It just comes back to, I think these studies are very interesting because you can't, again, just like the one that we just covered, when when you have either a small amount of time with large number of patients from multiple centers, or you have a large amount of time uh, over which people are being followed. These are hard to, to, to do. And so I get that. Uh, the, the things that I would add is, you know, there's obviously a selection indication and even a surveillance bias. Not that it's that bad. They got 80% of their eligible hips, but it's still, there's restricted clinical variation when you just have 45 patients that's just baked in. And then, you know, my other question is, were the individuals and what they were doing for them between 2008 and 2011 similar or have advancements over the last decade now, you know, things are so much better even that that these outcomes are not really what we would anticipate over the next 10 years for the outcomes of individuals who are getting these procedures or similar procedures currently. Agreed with you. All right. We're now moving into the Your Cases on Hold featurette. This is short-term neck pain after posterior foraminotomy compared with anterior discectomy with fusion for cervical foraminal radiculopathy, a secondary analysis of the facet randomized clinical trial by Simoz de Souza and colleagues. There is a visual summary. It is permanently free. So anytime you are within the sound of my voice and hearing this, you should check this out if you haven't already. There's no excuses. You can always get your hands on, uh, on this one. This is, again, you know, we're, we're just going down with, with each of the studies that we've covered here. There's obviously some unique and interesting aspects. In this case, it's a secondary analysis of a multi-center study, the FACET trial, which is foraminotomy ACDF cost-effectiveness trial, conducted at a number of European uh, locations between January 2016 and May 2020. 389 patients with single-level one-sided cervical radiculopathy, 265 randomly assigned, 132 posterior, 133 anterior surgery. And this study is a secondary analysis looking at trends with respect to neck pain. Now, uh, for those who are working in this space, obviously an anterior cervical discectomy infusion, you're really working through tissue planes. You're not doing really any until you get to the longest coli, like any type of muscle dissection, while the posterior surgical approach involves a good deal of, of stripping of the posterior, supporting paraspinal musculature, soft tissue, ligamentous envelope, and all of those extensor musculature that are essentially moving the head backward 
off of the, the spine so that you can access and perform the surgical intervention. So the fact that uh, you know, anyone who's working in the space, the fact that posterior surgery causes more pain than anterior surgery should not come as a surprise. I, I don't think that's especially controversial. But what is interesting here, uh, I think, is that they're showing the trends in improvement. And that, I think, can, you know, inform clinical care. When is someone who's continuing to have posterior neck pain after a surgery sort of outside the realm of what you would expect? That isn't especially well quantified. And this is done with, with really a, a large number of, of patients. As expected, they found initial pain was higher in the uh, posterior surgical group. And then despite that initially more neck pain after posterior surgery, patients improved. And as of uh, postoperative week five, their negligible difference from posterior to anterior. And they say our findings should enable improved patient counseling, enhance shared decision-making for those with cervical radiculopathy in terms of, I guess, using a posterior and an anterior approach. Now, it's a secondary analysis. They are upfront about that. They have it as level one evidence. I wouldn't give this level one evidence. And in the, if, if you read in the introduction, the rationale for the study is that it was designed as a cost effectiveness analysis comparing posterior and anterior surgery. That's the intent. And when you look at their statistical analysis, they talk about the power calculation. They weren't able to meet their numbers, uh, partially because of the onset of COVID-19. So um, they did have a statistician who kind of, you know, assured them that with the numbers they had, it would be good for the primary outcome. When we're talking about, again, hearkening back to our Plato's Cave kind of analogy as the basis, we're talking about these comparisons and wanting to use this pre-existing data to simulate a, a natural experiment or some type of experiment that we would conduct. You really want to see when there's no difference that the the between group difference is actually 0.0. That's when there's actually no difference. What they have here is that there's still a difference of 2.3, like imagine a VAS of like two to three, sort of, with their numbers not being large enough to support that as being significantly, because that is different from zero. Two is not zero. Zero is no pain. The patient says, I'm having two out of 10 pain. You don't say, oh yeah, so you're fine, uh, no pain. So there is I'm not good at there. math and I knew that. I mean, just yeah. a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so in a perfect world, if you're sufficiently powered and you're saying there's actually no difference, if you had 100,000 patients, that would be a significant difference. It's not a significant difference here because the confidence interval overlaps 0.0, which is the null uh, in this in this particular setting. So I would say this is level two evidence. I wouldn't hold it up as level one. It's a secondary analysis of a randomized controlled trial. Still interesting, and I already told you what I thought was the most interesting part is kind of, you know, how do these patients sort of return to, to baseline even beyond the comparison of posterior versus anterior, just because the anterior approaches have more issues with dysphagia, of course, rather than they do like an ax a true axial neck pain. Sometimes they get facet pain if you're putting a cage in or distracting the disc space too much that puts more stress on the posterior elements. But very interesting and uh, informative and 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 certainly worth the read and i think there're probably going to be some other secondary analyses coming out of the facet trial uh at some point if the abstracts that i've seen on the uh the presentation trail are any indication that's what i got Great. <laughs> that's pretty good so you know it, this, this brings up a question about the whole levels of evidence thing right 
Now, if you search up levels of evidence, different journals have different things. There's a JBJS one, obviously, that's the level of evidence that the original group kind of came up with. What do you use for your levels of evidence? How do you judge that from? Yeah, they're, they're general guidelines. And, and it's funny because you will get pushback on that sometimes if you like actually write, you know, in a critique or a review at the editorial deputy editor, or even as a reviewer, you know, and you say this is, for example, just using this, not that this happened in this case, I, I didn't handle this uh, particular article uh, in any editorial situation, but you'll write back and you say this is not, you know, level one evidence. Actually, I, I I I would be interested in how they rationalize. This is truly level one, but you'll say something like, "This is not level two evidence. This should be level three evidence." And they'll say, "Well, no, it's a it's a prospective study. So if it's a prospective study, it's level two because we said prospective. Once you say the word prospective, then it's automatically level two. But yeah, there's a lot of like fast and loose play on the margins I, for a study that you know it has to check all the boxes. Randomized controlled trial." that is well-powered, that's meeting all their benchmarks, that has statistically significant findings without failure of randomization and all of that, that's level one evidence. If it's a randomized controlled trial that's missing some of that, then it's, that's actually level two evidence. If it's a prospective observational study that, again, is intentionally, you know, because you get these people, you, you get submissions where it's clearly retrospective and they say, oh, it's a prospectively collected registry. So when you're seeing a patient in the office and you're entering just normal clinical care in the medical record, I saw them today, they're doing well post-surgery, that's a prospective study. You're prospectively entering data into the medical record, of course. No, it's not. It all has to do with the risk of bias. And that's how I assign the, the levels of evidence. I, I don't use like these very broad brushstrokes around it's level four if it's retrospective and there's no control. It's level three if it's retrospective and there is a control. It's level two if it's prospective and not randomized. It's level one if it's random. I mean, that's like super basic and it is kind of like that's the way it's taught, but there's a lot, there are many more layers in, in that dialogue. So there's a lot of stuff that can have a control group, but if the control group doesn't make sense, it's still level four evidence. Couldn't be said any better. So good take a message for all of our authors out there. All right. We are now moving into the honorable mentions. Risk factors for a failed transmetatarsal amputation in patients with diabetes by Ron and colleagues. This does have an infographic uh, for our visual learners. Uh, the title tells you what it's all about. Uh, it's a retrospective cohort study of 341 patients who underwent a primary transmetatarsal amputation. If you want to know the conclusions, you'll have to read the paper. <laughs> the next is allograft versus bioactive glass in pediatric benign bone lesions, a randomized clinical trial by Sivanin and colleagues. This has a commentary, so you can check out what others in this space are thinking. This also has level one evidence. Relatively small randomized study using a bioactive glass and allograft in the treatment of benign bone lesions. And they found that these provided comparable results in terms of recurrence and complications. So for those working in the space, I think some you know valuable insight and again, level one evidence supporting the use of these uh, products. And then we have automatic assessment of lower limb alignment from computed tomography by Kuiper and colleagues. This is also permanently free. This is looking at CT scans of the lower extremities in 50 subjects and developing a method that automatically calculates a range of 25 measurements defining lower limb alignment, taking less time, 
and with differences relative to the manual method that were comparable with repeated assessment. So um, definitely some interesting advancements to make automatic assessments of lower limb alignment. I think that certainly there are a couple of different uh, areas in orthopedics where that has value, including total joints, uh, scoliosis, just limb length discrepancies. Uh, I could go on. There's other things besides total joints that are of concern. I don't understand. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, that's why. You, uh, <laughs> yeah. No comeback to that. I love it. No, no. Yeah, I think we're you know about out of time. We've run out of time for me to come back with a comeback. Uh, <laughs> we're trying to do better next time, and of course, uh, hopefully your case is ready to go at this point. But we'll still be here with your case on hold. Till next time. Bye. In that twilight zone. <laughs> Everyone's gonna think of Tina in the same in a different way now. I know, that's right. Talking Tina. <laughs> Bye everyone. <laughs>